Welcome to the We Are Calvary podcast, where our mission is to share Jesus and help people experience life change. Thank you so much for listening. Here's this week's message. How many of you will be with us next week at 8 a.m.? So here's what I need you to do. The group of people that you come to this service with next week, I want you to text them. Simple. See you at the eight. You may not see them at the eight, but someone will see them at the eight because we're trying to get excited about the 8 a.m. service. So I would love to see some of you there. Uh, No kidding aside, we do believe that there is going to be something special that God wants to do in the midst of that time. So start your day early on a Sunday. Come out to church. Have some breakfast breakfast at 7.30. And then Engage in the word and continue on with your day, but we would love to see more than the seven of you who raised your hands at the 8 a.m. service next week. Sound good? Oh my gosh. Okay, stand your feet. Let's at least get to the word of the Lord. Listen, if you are a guest with us, my name is Daniel, one of the pastors on staff, and we are honored to have you joining us this weekend. Uh, These are the moments in our services where we come around the scriptures We believe here at Calvary that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe it is relevant for us today. So we take these moments each and every week to come around the scriptures, to learn more about who who God is and who Jesus is and how we call to respond to the saving message of Jesus Christ. And how do we learn to walk with the spirit of God each and every day? And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter five, we'll begin reading in verse 17. These are the words of Jesus. He would say, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father. We pray that as we engage in this text this morning, would you speak to our hearts? Would you take this word and have it go deep into our being and allow it to begin to to shift and to change us from the inside out? In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. You may be seated this morning. So last summer, I'm walking into a local coffee shop And out front, there's two women and one man, and they're in a relatively animated conversation. Now, I was not attempting to eavesdrop on their conversation, but as I opened the door to the shop, I overheard one of the women declare with a great sense of passion in her voice the following, politics has become the crux of their moral compass. Now, I do not know if she was referencing herself I don't know if maybe she was talking about somebody else, but something about that statement, it struck me. It brought to mind something I had read not long before by a British theologian and missionary named Leslie Newbegin. 
Newbegin in the 70s, he predicted that as the West became more secular, politics would become the new religion. And his seemingly prophetic words depict with unfortunate accuracy how many view politics today. Treated now as a quasi-religion, the idolization of politics is one of the unfortunate fruits of our modern secular society. And it's no secret that the West has been drifting towards secularism for some time. The graphic that is going to show on the screens in just a moment provides a visual of the drift. Now, the image and the following information that I'm going to share is taken from a book called Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Watkins. And what he says is that there was a point in society where God was involved in the whole of life. Living under this framework led people to the following attitudes towards God. One, I cannot understand myself apart from God. Two, I am made in his image. And three, I have no category for, uh, to comprehend my own existence apart from seeing myself in relationship to the God who made me. Now from here, as you'll see in that middle circle, a split occurred. Sometime in the 19th century, the West lived in what Watkins called a double existence. A divide took place between the familiar sacred realm of God being involved and a new secular realm where he would play no part. Eventually, even the split was no more and society in many ways has become exclusively secular, rejecting any semblance of a sacred order. So now the prevailing attitude has become that I am an autonomous being and I will choose for myself what is good and what is right with no thought to a sacred order. The late Timothy Keller, adding a little bit of clarity to this idea, would say the following. In the name of individual freedom, today's society declares that there are no transcendent realities to which we must conform. Rather, we choose our own values and create our own meaning in life. Academic, artistic, and entertainment institutions teach that the only sacred depths are the ones found within us. Indeed, if there is a moral absolute in today's culture, it is that we must not say that there are moral absolutes, let alone a sacred order with which all people must align. Such statements are said to oppress people and limit their freedom. Keller's observation cuts to the heart, and it is cause for reflection. I mean, think for a moment. A society that has limited or rejected a sacred order and who believes often passionately that there are no moral absolutes. What ultimately becomes of that type of society? If in a secular society the determination of what is good and right is subjective and left up to individual interpretation, what is the long-term outcome when there are no boundaries to the sliding scale of morality and ethics? Now, I'm treading into dangerous territory that some of us may not want to wade into today. And I'm sure with what I just said, some of your heads are spinning and you are creating this kind of black hole in your mind of the perceived negative future that the secular age might be offering us. So let's take a moment and we'll take a breath. And let me attempt to pull at least most of us out of the doom and gloom mindset that we may be thinking so we are currently in a teaching series called Living Out the Words of Jesus, where we have been working through Jesus' famed Sermon on the Mount. 
Now these words that Jesus spoke on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, they hold in them enormous significance for us today. See, in this sermon, we see Jesus' manifesto for life in the kingdom. These words cast a vision for humanity, offering not just another way to live, but the way to live and experience life eternal. They are an articulation of what is right and holy. These words have the potential to bring the weariest of souls, a sense of reprise, an act of cool water to those who thirst in a secular age. In them is a roadmap for life and how it was always meant to be lived. They are a declaration as to what is good, a moral and ethical reality for humanity that does not slide uncontrollably with the times, but is secure and eternal. The Sermon on the Mount provides for us a mental map, a life script to follow that will end in our flourishing in this life and in the one to come. So let us now look with expectancy at these verses that we read at the beginning. The four verses that make up today's scripture passage divide themselves in two parts. Uh, 17 and 18 are more about Jesus and the law, and then 19 and 20 are about Christians and the law. So Jesus begins this portion by stating the following. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now it seems due to the perceived radical nature of Jesus' teachings, even early on in his ministry, that some had assumed that his attempt was to nullify or to abolish the law and the prophets. But we will see this is simply not the case. Now, did Jesus oppose the legalistic type of religion that the scribes had built upon the law? Yes. And did Jesus oppose the illegitimate interpretations of the law that led the religious leaders of the day to stress regulations more than character? Again, yes. But even so, he makes it clear here that he was in no way contradicting, setting aside, or doing away with the law or the prophets. See, Jesus was doing something entirely different. And he says it quite plain, uh, plainly. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, before we get any further into his refute, we do need to establish the following. When Jesus uses the phrase, the law or the prophets, what is he referencing? What law is he referring to and who are these prophets? Now the phrase, the law and the prophets, it came to stand for the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call in the Bible the Old Testament. The Old Testament is divided into different sections. It begins with what we call the Pentateuch or what the Jewish people would call the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It also consists in the Old Testament the writings of history, books like Joshua and Judges. The writings of poetry like Psalm and the wisdom writings like Proverbs. And the writings of the prophets, examples Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And within these are teachings on doctrine, prophecy, and ethical and moral principles to live by. And again, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, he wants to make it very clear. He did not come to abolish them. Jesus did also not come to compete with them. No, what he was doing 
is he came to complete them. We can parse this out in a few ways. First, he would complete the law through his outstanding and perfect moral excellence and character. Jesus embodied humanness to the full, yet was without sin, exemplifying God's moral character and so fulfilling the law. Not only was he the embodiment of righteousness, he also taught with precision the correct interpretation and meaning of the law. Now second, he has and he will complete to the full all of the prophecy that was spoken about him in the scriptures. I think the New Testament writers do a brilliant job of pointing these moments out in the New Testament. For example, Matthew chapter one, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. Jesus would also say things like this. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now lastly, by fulfilling the law and the prophets, Jesus was completing a story up to this point. And so we might ask, well, what was the story that Jesus believed he was fulfilling? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright does this really creative job of using the metaphor of a play. And he takes the story of the Bible and he divides it into these different acts. So act one, he calls creation. We read it in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth. He created humanity and he had a, a purpose for humanity. He had an intelligent design for humanity and a destiny for them. Act two is the fall. Humanity, although they had such this beautiful opportunity to remain in communion and in deep presence with God, they chose for themselves to determine for themselves what is good, even though they never had the capacity to have the ability to determine it, which is why they always had to stay in a trusting relationship with God, who is the one who can determine what is actually good. Act three leads into the people of Israel, God's chosen people, his covenant people. And God asked these individuals to be a people of distinction to the nations around them, that they were meant to be a light unto the nations by observing the law that God gave them. Listen to this out of Deuteronomy. Speaking of the law, observe them carefully, for this will show you your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all of these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? But see, as Israel's story unfolds, Israel fails to uphold the law. And we see a pattern of repeated failure. And amongst the shame of failure, the turning to other gods, the times of captivity and occupation and oppression, the prophets of God begin to speak of a time that one would come to fulfill what Israel was not able to do, which takes you to act four, the coming of Messiah Jesus. Jesus would come to fulfill that which Israel could not, an act of fulfillment brought on by Christ's obedience to the law, fulfillment of the prophets, suffering unto death and his inevitable resurrected glory. In his book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, Christopher Wright offers this. Jesus must live as God had wanted Israel to live. He must obey where it had rebelled. He must succeed where it had failed. 
And this is exactly what the long-awaited Messiah had come to fulfill. The one that the prophets had spoke of, he broke into our world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us in order to live as God had wanted Israel to live, to obey where it had rebelled, to succeed where it had failed. For Jesus to fulfill meant to bring about what the scriptures had long foretold. And because Jesus is the one who fulfills, he now, as we will read, he is now the one with the authority to govern and to bring clarity to the application of the law. So in verse 18, he says this, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In Christ's authority as the fulfillment, Jesus restores the law to its integrity through rightful interpretation, providing for us clarity on the continuing eternal nature of the law. And see, right here, there is a tension that we who are part of the church, part of the New Testament church, this new covenant that we are in, there is a tension that we have to acknowledge between the eternal nature of the law and the temporal nature of the law. See, as a covenant system with Israel, it was temporal, ending at the cross when the temple veil was torn and a new priesthood through Jesus was established. But as a set of spiritual and moral principles, as a vision for human flourishing, it is eternal. This is why we read in the Psalms, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This is what leads the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. And yes, much of his letter is really trying to depict the beauty of our justification through faith. Even Paul would say, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Jesus' own brother James would say this about the law. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So the law as God intended it remains an essential reality for life in the kingdom today. Which is why in verse 19 of our passage, Jesus would say this, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Two things to point out about this verse. Number one, the law as God intended it is to be taught and it is to be practiced. And second, that greatness in the kingdom is measured by conformity and obedience to God's commands. Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on this verse, would say, the peerage of Christ's kingdom is ordered according to obedience. So while keeping in mind the temporal and the eternal nature of the law, we must ask what parts of the Old Testament are binding for us now? What in the law must be obeyed? Because the reality is, have you read the Old Testament lately? 
there is a lot in there, and some of these laws are, shall we say, quite interesting. For example, Leviticus, but all creatures in the sea or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. How many of you have had shellfish recently? Or shrimp? Well, shame on you. Did you not read the Bible? You should have known better. Or how about this? Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. I mean, have you seen our worship leader recently? (laughs) Did no one show him this passage before he got tattooed? Did no one show me? What's happening here? And I saw many of you walking in here today with tattoos. What are you thinking? See, this is the important thing we need to realize. We have to be able to parse out the Old Testament law. So what I want to do is I want to distill the law into three containers, so to speak, which will help to provide clarity. Container number one is the ceremonial law. Container two, the civil. And container three, the moral Now, much could be said about each of these, but I want to do this as quickly and concise as possible. The ceremonial and dietary laws we find in the Old Testament are connected to ritual purity. And these are no longer binding because Jesus fulfilled them to their completion when he became our great high priest through his sacrificial death on the cross, putting an end to the necessary practice of the temple sacrifice. We read this in Hebrews. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer, being Jesus, sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Now, the next container the civil legislative law intended solely for the single nation state of Israel, they are no longer binding to us because through Jesus was the creation of the new family of God. The church was created when Jesus gave himself up on the cross and extended salvation to everyone, which means that the new family of God is made up of all different types of people. We have men, we have women, different ethnicities, different cultures, different nations who profess faith in Christ. But the third container, the moral and the ethical matters continue to this day and they require what Jesus said, to be taught and to be practiced. Why? Because they are good and they are right and they lead to human flourishing and they act as a guard and a guide along the narrow road that leads to life and life more abundant. So now in our passage, we come to a shift that takes place. If verses 17 and 18 were about Christ and the law, 19 that we read, and now 20 are about us and the law. Bringing these two ideas together, Pastor Tim Chaddock offers the following. The law in the hands of Jesus is the plumb line for Christian ethics. So with that in mind, let's read verse 20. Jesus would say, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, upon hearing that, and probably when we read it earlier, you thought to yourself, I sure hope he explains that one. Because that's not an easy verse. I mean, you might be thinking to yourself, how is that possible? I mean, weren't the scribes and the Pharisees, weren't they known for their righteousness? Was that not the very purpose of their lives? And now Jesus is saying that our righteousness has to surpass even theirs. What does he mean by that? See, ours, as believers in the work and the teachings of Christ Jesus, ours is a righteousness that John Stott would say, it goes beyond in kind rather than degree. See, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. See, what we must understand is that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was external and it was activity-oriented. But God demands more than this. It is far more comprehensive than external obedience. This is why Jesus would say things like, woe to you teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites, You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. The Pharisees were caught up in a surface-level righteousness empowered by a spirit of legalism that attempted ethical obedience as a means of achieving God's grace. But in their pursuit, they missed something. They seemingly had forgotten that even in God's giving of the Ten Commandments, grace preceded their expectation to be obedient. Look at the verse right before the Lord gave the Ten Commandments. He said this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. He draws to their mind, listen, I'm about to line out this way of living, this way that's gonna allow you to be distinct among the nations. I'm gonna show you how humanity was always meant to be lived. But before I ask you to be obedient, let me draw your mind and your attention to this reality. It was I who brought you out first. Christopher Wright explains it like this. In God's grace and in faithfulness to his covenant promise, he had acted first and redeemed them. He had not sent Moses with the Ten Commandments under his cloak to tell Israel that if it would keep the law, God would save it. Precisely the other way around. He saved it and then asked it to keep his law in response. Simply said, God blesses and we respond. And friends, this is what we must acknowledge today. Because of Jesus and his fulfillment, our obedience is not a means of achieving God's grace. It is only ever a response to it. Our pursuit of righteousness is not empowered by a spirit of legalism. What is on offer through Jesus Christ is a deep-seated righteousness of the heart empowered by his spirit. Our call is not to a works-based righteousness, but to a righteousness of the heart that is only possible for those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated and indwells. 
And a new heart righteousness is the very thing that the Old Testament prophets foresaw long ago. Ezekiel prophesying on behalf of God would say, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And friends, these are those days. Because of Jesus, we can experience a new birth, a new heart, a renewed spirit within us. For those who have experienced God's grace and have been justified through faith and received the gift of salvation, God has placed his spirit within us so that we would be able to do as Ezekiel said, move us to follow his decrees and to be careful to keep his laws. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we must now go beyond what Dallas Willard calls humanly contrived religious respectability. And in its place, allow the spirit to lead us to become the type of person who walks out faithful obedience to the morals and the ethics of the kingdom. And to do this, we must accept and be willing to navigate the difficult, often complex journey inward to the human heart. See, the rest of Matthew chapter five, Jesus sets his course on the crux of it all, the human heart. Jesus will use a series of contrasts between the outward demands of the law and the inner attitude of the heart. Let me read two of them to you. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Or how about this? You have heard it said that it was, it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now we must realize that in these statements of Jesus, he is not questioning the Old Testament. He's really questioning the interpretation of the Jewish scholars. So you have heard it said, but let me provide clarity. Let me sharpen it even more. See, for Jesus, his greatest concern is not that we would be able to somehow contrive a type of external obedience Jesus always, his mission was the human heart. His mission is to change the very type of person that you are. Which is why in all of those, murder, he gets to the deeper attitude, the deeper heart posture. No, 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 you, you should not even be angry. Or at least, why are you angry? And let me meet you in that anger and begin to heal you. It's not just about don't commit adultery. Let me help you deal with this area of lust in your heart that would lead you to objectify another. Talking about divorce, let's get to this area of commitment, oath-taking, speaking the truth, retaliation, forgiveness, hate your enemy. No, no, I want you to love your enemy, but first I need your heart. I need to change you from the inside out. But how? Because I think that most of us, we would say, yeah, okay, I want that. 
I'm tired of the anger within me. I'm tired of blowing up on the people around me. And I've been even involved in the church for some time and I'm, I'm trying so hard with all of my might to be a good person. I'm trying to make the right decisions and I keep finding myself so frustrated with this battle of lust that just continues on. When will it ever change? So what do we do? Let me offer this. Any change of the human heart is first going to begin with a response to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's gonna begin there. And it's gonna begin there because you have to acknowledge and to realize that you will never be able to be good enough to achieve God's love. See, we've got to set this straight, friends. You cannot earn grace. You cannot earn it but you can receive it. And no matter how bad things have been, no matter how lost you may find yourself to be, no matter how twisted you think things have become because of your own actions, the grace of God, the blood of Jesus will cover that. So it begins with the gospel. And with the gospel, then, as we believe in the person of Jesus, the work of the cross, and this whole resurrection that we are going to celebrate at Easter in a a number of, of weeks, then comes the indwelling of the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God actually comes and indwells in you. That is so radical to actually process and to think through. And what does the Spirit of God do? The Spirit of God begins to to point you to truth. The Spirit of God begins to send you into the reality of who he's called you to be, the type of person you are to become, these morals and these ethics that will allow you to begin to showcase the beautiful reality of Jesus to the people around you. But then we don't just read truth, we have to then practice that truth. That's a really key thing that we need to understand. Listen, it is so good that you are all here today and I pray to God that you are experiencing moments of just you're learning and and truth is coming out and you're hearing the word of God. But listen, if you just think that a download of information, of truth is going to change you, you are mistaken. That is why Jesus said, let's not just be hearers of the word, let's be doers of the word. And so we have to practice We have to look at the life of Jesus. We have to see the spiritual disciplines that have been part of the church for for thousands of years. And we have to give ourselves to those moments which offers the Holy Spirit opportunity to come and to shift and to adjust us from the inside out. When I wake up in the morning and go to the scriptures, I am not doing so so God will love me. I already know he loves me. And he will not love me more because X amount of days a week I opened up his book. God, do you see me? I'll wave it around so you can really see it. In expectation that if I am seen reading my Bible, that somehow God is gonna, you know, bless me that day. No, I open the scriptures because I know that when I give myself to these types of practices, it is opening myself up to the spirit of God so that the spirit of God can do what only the spirit of God can do. And that's to change my heart from the inside out. So gospel, spirit, truth, practice, here's what ultimately will happen. As you begin to practice the way of Jesus in your daily reality, there are gonna be areas in your life that continue to come up 
there's going to be that, that tragic moment in your childhood where someone you trusted did something to you that was unthinkable, and even 25 years later, you cannot get over it. And in that moment, you're gonna have to go through a process of healing. And you're gonna have to give yourself to the types of practices and the types of engagement that would allow you to begin to see the Spirit of God in the midst of even those horrendous times to know that you were not alone. See, many of us, we we enter a time in our journey with Jesus where we hit a wall. And we've received the Spirit of God and we're, we're coming around the truth of the Scriptures and we're doing our best to practice the way of Jesus. But there's these certain areas of our humanity that are just are not shifting or not changing. It's because you need to heal. And you need to be vulnerable and honest enough to realize that there is something within you that is not right and you need to allow it to manifest out in the, in the right context, the appropriate context, so that you can begin to experience a renewal in your life. And all of that should be done in the context of community. And it takes place over time. See, I know right now that I am not the person that I ultimately want to become. And can I just be honest with you? I'm okay with that. Because God never promised me that just because I accepted his son Jesus that ultimately I was gonna walk through some magical you know, chamber and like instantly be perfect. I'm on a journey. And you are on a journey. And we get to walk together over time becoming more and more like Jesus each and every day. That is the gift that we not only get to offer one another, but that's the gift that we get to offer the world. See, in the midst of what we've talked about today, you wanna know what the world needs from the church right now? Is to walk out the morals and the ethics of Jesus. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. There is going to be pressure put on you as a believer in the way of Jesus to begin to slide the ethics and the morality. And we are gonna have to lovingly be firm and secure and confident and courageous because what we believe in the depths of our being is that God does not give us morals and ethics to follow so that we can then have a tangible way to prove ourselves to him. He gives us the morals and the ethics of the kingdom because he says, listen, I created you. I know how this whole thing works, so you just have to trust me. I am the one who will define what morality looks like, not the world. I will be the one to dictate the ethics that you are called to, not culture. And that's not because God hates culture. He loves the world that he sent his son to die for. And part of him calling people to himself would be a group of people called the church living out a different alternative to a hurting world around them. And we will not be able to do so if we are allowing our morality to slide around all over the place. So get secure in what Jesus says and believe it is what is best for your life and hold on to it and grow and learn and you will make mistakes at time and it's okay because the grace of Jesus is so good. But just because of grace, we do not go on sinning. And we need to hold on to this church. We need to be passionate about this. And we need to carry it in such a way that is filled with love and grace. That's what I want to be part of. And so, Father, we come to you in these moments.
And Lord, you have just such a vision for us to walk out. And Lord, I know at times we have not done it well. But Lord, I would pray that maybe for many in this moment, today would be a moment of resurrender. A resurrender to who you are, a resurrender to your vision, a resurrender to your call, a resurrender to what it means to follow after Jesus. And also, Lord, maybe for some, today would not be a resurrender, it would be a first surrender. I know that there are individuals in this room right now who have never made that decision to say, I want to put my faith in this person named Jesus who loved me enough to die on a cross for my sins and now offers me an eternal life. And for those individuals, they may not even understand all of what we talked about today, but that doesn't matter because I believe that there are some even right now that this, the the spirit within them is calling out to you. And so Father, I pray that you would meet people today where they're at. May they see you for your goodness and your mercy. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to partner with us in sharing Jesus and helping people experience life change, you can support our mission by clicking the link in the description. If this message has impacted you, please subscribe and share. To learn more, visit wearecalvary.com. We'll see you back next week.